out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we definitely are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. It's true. And um, I'm with you for the next 60 minutes. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, as you know, always playing in the finest in indie pop from the golden decade. But we love a special guest this week. It's going to be the turn of Corner Shop because I spoke to Jinder Singh very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other kind of groovy stuff. Um, so yes, this is the interview. And also, just to say, the band have just got a new album out titled England is a Garden, available from all good bookshops. Um, you don't need to know any more, do you really? But after about five minutes of interest and chat, which I've edited out, which is probably the best bit actually, but anyway, that was just us getting to know each other. It was fascinating. Um, we got down to the exciting point or part where I asked about those early musical influences. I know, it's a classic, isn't it? You can use that as well if you want. Anyway, this is the reply. Take it away, Jinder. Yeah, I, I suppose when I grew up, music wasn't totally... Um, I only listened to I only listened to Indian music, whether that was devotional Sikh music or Punjabi folk music or Hindi film music. Um, it was very much late. Well, it was, it was I didn't get into Western music till about the age of eight and nine, and that was probably I was thinking about it the other day when I did a an interview. Was was when um, I was in the chess team, so we'd travel quite a lot, and the chess tutor, Mrs. Evans, had uh, loved the radio and ha- always had it on. So that slowly got me into Western music, um, which was quite strange, but also it made record collecting quite uh, that much more uh, of a thrill, really, because I didn't have the back catalogue that my that uh, my friends had. Yes. Because I suppose with most people, I mean, yes, as I've given vaguely away my age, my par- I didn't really have much on the musical front. My parents were much more into sort of, they'd been into various kind of traditional things like Elvis Presley and Teresa Brewer and, and then some strange and probably quite dreadful country and Western, actually. Um, so that wasn't too much of a thing. But I had an older brother who was seven years older who, you know, would bring these kind of, have these prog rock records, which I found fascinating and interesting so he had a bit of an influence but obviously it was the Thursday evening top of the pops and then the Sunday after uh, yeah Sunday evening you know top 40 on the radio which we I remember the excitement of knowing if a, tr- a song had gone up or down two places was quite a big thing so what were the kind of the, re- the first kind of records that you started to become kind of really curious about well, actually, as you said, you've got an, you had an elder brother that um, was a good influence on you. My eldest brother also was into rock, um, Rainbow and Deep Purple, that sort of Led Zeppelin. Um, so that that uh, interested me a little. And then my middle brother was more uh, into independent music when it came along. Um, in, in the 80s, like, stuff like the Smiths, and then just um, C86, um, he was definitely into, and um, and then the American sort of equivalents of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I was I was into independent music, um, but I also carried on collecting absolutely everything and anything that I could get, um, and that. And by 86, we were, me and Ben started uh, in Preston studying together. We, the first year was we lived together, and the second year we lived together, but there was only four of us. Um, and that's when we, we used to see a lot of groups in Preston. There was quite a lot of venues, and we'd go to Manchester and Liverpool to see groups as well. Um, and... I think after a while we started making music because it was something to occupy our minds. We had a very cold house and uh, also s- slowly we we 
we all constantly recorded stuff onto cassettes, talking of CA, C80, well, C, C90s, in fact. Yes. Um, we uh, were constantly recording the music that we were doing and making albums. In fact, we did, we did about 15 albums of songs that Ben would then uh, make cassette covers and we gave them out to very few people indeed. One of them was a local um, DJ um, that we used to see around in Manchester, but he was from Preston. So we'd see him around and um, we when, when he heard the stuff, he really liked it. He had, did the fanzine as well, David. Um, and so we asked him to be, be our um, drummer. And then I asked my brother to join. And so that was the first four people. That, that, in fact, we were all, we were probably all more DJs, not in the house party sense of the word, um, rather than musicians as such. Yeah. And did you, I mean, at that stage, because you mentioned chess, had that started to take a back seat in your life? Oh, well, I, I actually stopped uh, around the age of 11. Right. That was... um, but I started very young, and by the by 11, we were all spent. Our Chadsway Junior School was, was pretty good, and we travelled a lot, but we also played for the town and the, the local village uh, teams as well. So... We it, it really was quite uh, it was full on. It wasn't just we'd have like two or three um, teaching sessions after school every week, uh, and then we'd have town um, practices as on top of that. So it it was um, we were hot housed and and sort of burnt out uh, by the age of eleven, and when we went to our senior school, the the chess teacher was a wrestler, and he pinned me and uh, another chap up against the wall when we when we said we weren't gonna, uh, in a nice way, in front of his form uh, at registration. Um, but uh, even the the kendo Nagasaki style did not uh, detect from our path. But no chess chess was uh, but ch from chess you, you realised how. Other people did things, and for, for an, an Asian, uh, from an Asian background, things were very different. It was always a third. You were always a third uh, party citizen. You were never. You took things. Um, nothing was taken for granted. Whatever you had, it was as if you didn't really live there. Unfortunately, it was as if uh, you. You unfortunately you existed, but on on top of that you existed, but you weren't supposed to be there. It was quite bleak, as far as I remember it, and uh, um, I suppose that's what's etched etched my. I mean, also going into independent places, I used to get very sort of frightened uh, because Asians just didn't do that, and there was me and my brother. And we'd go to certain places that were very friendly if you got to know the right people, but were very aggressive if you were um, you were always scanning for people that were uh, going to be trouble, especially as as the night went on. Nothing was nothing was uh, nothing was as soft and uh, delicate as, as the C eighty six movement itself, unfortunately. No, no, it's um, or Sarah Records. That would be soft and fluffy in a slightly introverted way. But did you, when you, um, when you started sort of forming a band, did, did you, were you just kind of copying and, and sort of doing covers to begin with, just to sort of work out the structure of how a song comes together? No, we couldn't do that. We, we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough about us to be able to do that. Um, ben stole his mum's acoustic guitar with nylon strings uh, and because he had the guitar i then bought a bass a very small cheap lovely bass actually and the bloke who sold it to me was wonderful as well he sold it to me with a wham amp and um 
So that, that, that was the start of the group. Um, but no, we couldn't do covers. Uh, that would be uh, far too far a stretch. Yes. Well, it's funny because I've spoke to a few bands from that sort of the C86 world. I think it was Big Flame. And um, I think the reason they, they had created such a strange sound was that he said that um, they were frankly musically terrible. So they, that was the best they could do, which was going to be very odd. But they were just going to do the one album and then and then do something else. They, they were never a band who were going to be able to make much of a career out of music. But it was kind of interesting. The, the limitations did mean that people were quite creative. So... Um, and when you when you started listening, I mean, when, did you sort of find your voice quite sh- quickly? Did you sort of think, oh, actually, this is all right. I'm I'm quite confident. Or did it take a while? No, it, it took a while. We we both sang and played um, guitar, and um, but actually, Ben was probably the the lead singer, uh, and it wasn't me. Um, but as time went on and we dispersed from Preston, uh, we would keep meeting. And I, but then I sort of took over doing more songwriting than, than, than Ben. And, um, and then slowly uh, I, I did uh, all the songs. Yes. And when you did your first release, the EP, The Days of the Ford Cortina... That yeah. must have been, because that was kind of an interesting period, because a lot of the bands I've interviewed from the, the, the 80s, there was definitely a five-year period, and it was kind of, to be honest, indie pop at that period was kind of, I'll put it down between the years of 83 to 87, which is, you know, basically the years of the Smiths. But there was definitely, after that came to an end, there was definitely a shift in music, and also there was the ecstasy drugs that came in, and so a lot of the bands that I'd loved during that period had sort of called it a day because they'd had the second album, they had still not made much money. They'd also grown to hate each other as well. And then suddenly it's like, now we want dance music or dance-influenced kind of stuff, you know, like the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays, Primal Screams, Soup Dragons. So a lot of the bands were just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And they split up. So that that was definitely one thing that knocked a lot of bands out. And then you had the grunge period. So you came came along in the sort of the early 90s, bizarrely, before that world that was Britpop. Did you, did you sort of have any kind of thinking, you know idea of how you were going to try and sort of navigate that kind of period of being in in music which you've been in with the rest of your life really no there was no real navigation other than i was unemployed when we first got signed to read your records read your records were very much a riot girl label um and i distinctly remember thinking i've got to give this uh, a lot of effort because I don't want to go back to being unemployed. So that's what happened. And slowly, unfortunately, we saw label mates and other bands around us just stop and, uh, and implode. Um, and we'd, we always just carried on in terms of production and in terms of what we were doing and use of technology and different types of songs and, so, in a way, we shimmied around everything that was going. Uh, we, uh, you know, we a lot of our songs were used to start so, something like the Asian Underground, and we were nicely nothing to do with it. Um, it was, in fact, looking back at some of the some of the genres that we have been aligned with, um, we still prefer the right girl era where there was politics there was a movement to change the industry as it was and there was a lot of enthusiasm and everything was quite energetic every day was very different yeah but but it was also very short-lived unfortunately it was because actually Ouija records I think they were connected to, was it Southern Studios or was that slightly different? I just remember Ouija because there was one of my favourite bands at that time was Silverfish, who were, the, were on that label for a period before getting signed to another label, as you do. And there was also bands like Biss and and um, I think Jacob's Mouse and Huggy Bear and, and bands like that as well, wasn't it? So there was, it did have, a, it was a bit like 4AD or... 
you know, early creation, especially where you know you you sort of th- you wanted to buy anything on that label just because when you're that certain age, you want that you want that identity, you want to feel cool. <laughs> well, uh, yes, yeah, Silverfish then went on to creation, of course, and Chris from Silverfish lives just down the road from me. Um, and stuff like Jacob's Mouse and Huggy Bear were the people that were on the label when when we joined. Um, but it was aligned actually to um, to Rough Trade. It was in the basement of Rough Trade Records. Uh, Ouija Records were. They might have had some sort of distribution with something. I'm, I'm not too sure. Yes, but that would have been before my time. It was. So then. The album "Hold On It Hurts" came came out sort of at that sort of the wave that was sort of the Britpop period, and you you recorded that in Rochdale, didn't you? Or did you record it in several other studios? No, it was mainly done in Rochdale uh, at Peter Hook's studio, um, and it was our first. We'd done a couple of EPs with John John Rob, and it was our first album, and. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't find the recording going great and we got rid of John and we asked another John to come along and by hook or by crook, we finished that album. We should have actually just started again, I think. Um, We liked the songs, but we didn't think they were executed very well. And if you then fast forward to 2015, we did an easy listening version of that album because we thought the melodies were there. But if we had our time again, the the songs uh, and the way that they were recorded would have been different. But everything was changing anyway. I mean, we, we had our first single that was very noisy. We had England's Dream, which was pretty noisy, but also had a variety of songs that weren't so noisy, one using harmonium. Um, we'd already used Punjabi lyrics as well. And then the third, third single was totally different, and it had just um, technology and sequences, and so that totally changed it. So we we were changing all the time and surprising some people uh, with that. And I think it was that element of surprise that kept us going because the first album didn't do very well. It got us it, it got us on merge records in America, but in England we were seen as dead. We had to tour in Europe, and then when we came back, we sort of again. Well, actually, I think when we came back from Europe, we then had a bit of a watershed of some of some of the members. My brother went and David uh, was asked to leave. Um, I think Ben was asked to leave as well at some stage. Um, and then we we had more, we had the sitarist already. Me and the sitarist uh, started doing more songs and we then developed the group back up again. We got a drummer and then we got a percussionist in. And then Ben came back and played tampora and guitar, and so we built it back up then. So, yeah, we lifted the bonnet up and we we made quite a few changes. Wow, that was quite that was quite good sort of um, yeah some good moves. And also, did it feel a bit strange that I mean though you you said you were a bit disappointed with the album, it did sort of get you kind of invited or sort of suddenly noticed, and sort of people like David Byrne signed you to his label that must have felt slightly surreal thinking David Byrne is suddenly sort of you know getting in contact saying you know sign here we love you well actually that was the next album that was um the woman's got to have it album uh, that went more um in uh, that, that we got signed to Luarka uh on, on the basis of woman's got to have it um and then we were in America um and doing very well. And in America, it was it was quite strange because it was very different. People loved us in America. We were absolutely fresh and new to them, and everything that we did was different to how they did things. And so we really had a great new lease of life anyway uh, when we got there. Um, and then after that album, which was also through Warners, we also then, with the next album, we had more money for the studio and um, more enthusiasm from people to do what uh, we wanted to do in the studio. And um, so When I Was Born for the Seventh Time was, was the next album and that, um, it's there were a lot of ideas flying about and 
Dan the Automator, we'd, we'd known, I'd met him in London and shown him around London um, with my wife uh, because he'd done a remix for a, a Clinton, which was a side project, which is more technology. And then those sort of songs just came together very quickly and they were very different. Um, and we were using two studios, our old studio in Preston at that time, and also um, East Coast Studios in Kensal, Kensal Green. Um, and really that, you knew you were in a group then because um, it, we, we were touring as well between recording and we were in America a hell of a lot. And we were doing Lollapalooza and playing big, big places. And um, and then when the album did come out, it did very well in America. So um, everything was was pretty good. Yes. Yeah. And I, I was just going to say, did it again? You know, I mean, because because a lot of bands have said they they kind of split up, and there was various reasons. Often, five years seems to be that sort of time span, but. But one of the reasons is kind of they, they, there's often that mention and we toured America and then we split up. I mean, did you you sounded like America wasn't the place that that sort of destroyed and crossed you and made you think, no, this is it. I'm going home and I hate these people that I'm in a band with. So you obviously had a bit of a better time. Yeah, we, we loved America and we loved touring. We. We, we we've always kept. We've never allowed Class A's to come on on board ever, and I think that was probably what saved us. In fact, I think that's what saved saved us in many ways. Actually, and there was a lot of it going on, and uh, we refused to entertain it at, at all. And that sort of goes back to our earlier roots that we didn't get being a band to be rock and roll like other people. We there were certain things that we weren't uh, weren't going to do, and Class A's were, were one of them. And if anyone on with anyone on our entourage uh, was doing that, then they were asked to leave, um, and not many people did. Yes, that's a good thing. I always remember, I know Lemmy from Motorhead, but he, he, he always refused anybody. He, he took a lot of drugs, but he hated heroin because that was the one that sort of killed so many of his friends. So I think you always have to have boundaries and barriers and, uh, and sort of standards. So that was... Uh, and did you... And were you coping with, you know, being a pop rock kind of star, you know, because obviously, you you know, things had changed. You were on the stage, you know, people were buying your records, people, you know, you were having this this kind of experience that nobody prepares you for. So I just wondered how you were dealing with that kind of emotionally, spiritually, you know, just on a, on a sort of, a, you know, how that was affecting you. Um, I think we... Well, I, I think we took it quite well. Um, we had a manager when we were over in America, um, and every day things, if they're going well, they're going well. It, it really was uh, a case of that. There'd be different phone calls from people. There'd be different collaborations that other people talked about. Um, and at that time, there's also quite a lot of money in it as well. So we were we were doing pretty good, and we could feel that we were doing good. Um, you walk into to Warner Brothers uh, offices and speaking to top executives was was quite strange. And meeting them uh, in fancy restaurants around California is quite strange. But the people that we met were generally very much down to earth and really into the music, and that that was enough for us, and that that kept us going. Um, and it it continued like that for for quite a while, but I think after well, then we obviously one of the tracks from the uh, album was was Brimfall, and when that blew up, we were actually in America when when that was being done. We were told that uh, someone had phoned in and uh, asked to do a mix of it after hearing it on the radio. And um, we knew Pizza Man from Norman Cook. We knew quite a lot of that and liked it. So we agreed to, to that. And then when it came out, it was just going to be a white label. But every time 
anyone heard it, um, it was obvious that it was going to be a single. Yes, blimey. Because um, one of the highlights, and um, you know, coming from a sort of a working class background, there wasn't a huge amount of money about it, but one of the highlights of, the, of being a John Peel fan was his fest- Festive 50, which was very exciting, I have to say. We used to record it on our trusty TDK D90 cassettes and then keep them for years or decades later. And and you sort of, you topped, uh, I think it was 1997, didn't you? You were you were the top, the legendary Festive 50 by John Peel, which which kind of has a lot more meaning to for people like me than anything else. Um, so did you, did you feel quite a, a moment that that, that had sort of, reached those giddy heights as well as selling millions around the world oh we we certainly did i mean we went our first one of our first gigs in camden in 93 uh john rob was there john peel john savage there's always we've always been followed by quite a few johns and um not in the ginsburg sense um and um yeah it was it it was we were the same. We we would uh, listen to Peel through the night. We we uh, were amazed that uh, we d- we did a gig in Camden. Then you'd go home, you'd put the you'd, on your way on the motorway, you'd put the the Peel show on, and uh, and he'd be talking about the show that he's just been to, which is your show, and play a few tracks. Which that that's a big turning point. And then getting the festive fifty. Uh, Number one is uh, it is very decent. God, it is. I mean, I, I suppose you know. I, I, I have to be honest here, but if, if John Peel played anything, I'd think that it's been sort of blessed somehow. So it was definitely okay. <laughs> so you know, I mean, he introduced me to just any, just everything really, from the Bundu Boys, the Gregory Isaacs, the Public Enemy, to you know, all the indie pop stuff that I've sort of grown to love as well, and. Yeah, you know, so I just feel like he'd done a lot of work to pick that one track from, uh, you know, all those different genres of music, which I always felt like, yes, if John's played it, it's going to be okay. Even when I, even when he was going through his happy hardcore phase, I just thought it must be okay. He likes happy hardcore. It's cool. I'm going to like it too. Ish. <laughs> I lie slightly. But then, you know, obviously, you know, to follow up a massive moment like that, and also that had been your third album, did you, because it was five years, you know, between that and your next album, did that, was that a period of just kind of dealing with the the kind of moment? I suppose like the Soup Dragons, I've done an interview with two of the members there, and they, they had that moment of like having a global hit, which just didn't, they weren't prepared for, but suddenly it was like everywhere, and I think they did probably take drugs. But did you manage to sort of cope with having your sort of Nana's 99 Red Balloons, kind of like, wow, everyone loves it? Yes, we we cope with it as as well as we could do. You know, we we weren't um, pop stars. We weren't going to act like pop stars, um, so that was good. Um, we took a bit of a flack for that. Pe- Sorry, my son's calling me. Yeah. Um, but. Well, survival was the game, and it, you said it was five years to the next album, but actually we then went back to what I, I mentioned earlier. We went back to Clinton, and we did an album with Clinton in 99, I think. And then we regrouped and did the next album with uh, for uh, that came out. It was done by 2001. It came out in 2002. But... Um, we put everything that we could have put into it. We knew that we had to do better than um, when I was born for the seventh time, which was Spin Albums, Spin Magazine's album of the year uh, when it came out. So we had a lot to prove and a lot to do. And in a way, we've always had that. Right from the first album, we had to do better. Second album, we had to keep persevering. And then with with the third album we had more means of doing it but we had to, everything that we've ever put out whether it's a single or an album we've had to prove ourselves that's kept us on our toes quite a lot uh, and we think that when hand cream for a generation came out it did it was a better album than when i was born um and um unfortunately we didn't feel at that stage that the 
that the label were um, reciprocating the effort that, that we put in, well, that I put in. You know, it was quite heady, heady sort of stuff. Um, and um, so we, we parted company with that label. And then we actually moved, talking of Rough Trade, we were on Rough Trade Records for um, a very short while. We did a bubbly core al- a track with them and a, a, something with Rowetta um, and I think a couple of other singles. And then we they then went into bed with our old old record label and we thought well, we've done that already so we, we we then went off and made our own label um and jeff jeff was uh, very good about it and um and very encouraging actually uh, someone like jeff travis um uh, which is very unfortunate that we we didn't uh, stay with him but we we, we couldn't um that's that, that's how it is. But if it wasn't for him, I don't think we would have done finished the the bubbly core album, and um, with it, and he, he was very kind to us. So um, yeah, so we then moved on to our own record label. We'd done Ben's done production control. I was doing the management most of the time. Um, I was doing production after the first album, certainly uh, doing all the production. Um, so we we learned a lot of the different areas within music. Anyway, we did our own press releases because no one else would be able to do those press releases. No one else knew the songs enough or, or the background to them. So with all that knowledge, we thought well, we, we'll, we did look for other places, and we were bitterly disappointed. And <laughs> um, so in the end, it was decided that we should uh, do our own label. Yeah, I, I think by that time a lot of sort of burnout certainly had uh, had uh, taken its taken heed, um, and so that that was when it did take a long time between two thousand and one when the first second that hand cream was finished to um, two thousand and nine when Judy Sucks a Lemon for Breakfast album came out. And that was uh, the first, I think that was the first album on our, on our label. Yes. And did that, because um, I spoke to quite a few people who've done labels. There was a band from Scotland who, who I can't remember. Damn. But um, yes, yeah, setting up a record label. Did you have to get quite a lot of advice about and sort of figure out how to do it? Or, or did you sort of feel like, did you feel at that stage, because the music industry had changed so much, that you'd rather just, not worry so much about selling the big units but just t- having more control and and not sort of having to sort of lose sight of where all the cash was going because because I suppose I remember talking to Hazel O'Connor recently who'd hit big in the 80s and then sort of got sort of not a great experience with the record label and then one day sort of found she got you know saw, saw somebody at the Edinburgh Festival singing and then afterwards going off and selling merchandise and thinking actually if I just do the same business model I'd be a lot happier rather than trying to be part of that industry and I just wondered if that was part of your feeling as well that you'd rather just take control of the situation I would say it was because we were totally in control of the situation as I said with press releases we did we did everything. That, that was probably why we were so uh, disappointed with, with uh, a lack of support when when uh, that album came out. Um, we did everything. The re- record label never even heard the tracks until it was in the mastering in the mastering suite. Um, everything was done. We also oversaw with our friend uh, and designer Nick, Nick Edwards. We oversaw what direction the uh, artwork went in um there wasn't that much to do for, with a, with a group like us other than to to hope that uh, that it was going to work and i'm afraid every album did work and every album got be- bigger and, and better as far as we're concerned um but in terms of yeah in terms of control i think there's two words for indie you know one is uh, being on an indie indie label is one is uh, you just got to 
if you don't like it, you can stuff it. A lot of labels are like that. So there's no point in being on some labels because they won't do anything for you. Um, as was, I think, from an ethos that we, we, we wanted to get things done. Um, and then on the other side, there is a loss of overall sort of budgets when you get to major labels. But we we'd, we weren't at that stage um, then at all. In fact, we were struggling to survive. So when the album did come out, it was it was a, a bit of a relief. Yes, because it's often it's always you know as a fan, I've never sort of understood that whole sort of business of of the music industry. I do a bit more now after speaking to so many people, but trying to keep a hold of your publishing and the rights to your music, and and working out, you know whether you're ever going to get paid and you know quite a lot of people that you think wow you've you know you've done so many records and done so successfully I remember the guy Jim from Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine you know they still owe their record label a phenomenal amount of money so he's never going to see any money for the rest of his life from his records because they're just going well you're just paying off the debt still so you know and it's like oh I didn't realize we managed to run up such a lot of debt but it is kind of like a lot of bands do eventually split up because they just think I just I'm still living with my girlfriend, my parents. We've we've got nothing, you know. Um, so I'm just going to go from it now. So I just wondered if you'd ever got to those stages in, in the music industry, you know, with your career, just thinking oh, this is just such a lot of hard work. Well, it, it is hard work. That's that's for sure. But um, we got in the industry to do a lot of hard work, um, and we we weren't as comfortable as we could have been, certainly. Um, but we weren't poor either because we'd, as I said, in the 90s, there was a lot of money going on and getting a few adverts here and there were um, w was a lot of money. Um, so we were doing okay. Um, as a band, we all shared in, all, all the songs were shared out. Um, so that's probably what also kept us together, going back to that question earlier. Um, so there, there was something in it, in it for, for all of us. Um, and sorry. And I, well, I was going to say, cause at the beginning you said, uh, you know, your, your feelings and status in the country. I mean, did that change at all over, you know, your life or have you always had that sort of in the back of your mind that you can just, you, you know, you said, um, you're a third rate citizen, I believe. So I just wondered if things like that have altered no not not really um i think I, I spent a bit of time when after burnout just um it, it's weird to walk into a room or a pub and everyone knows who you are and you don't know who they are uh and that i got much more of that rather than ben because um because my, because i was asian and i was more recognizable um that sort of weirded me out. But I suppose when it started fading away, that sort of weirded me out <laughs> as well. And um, and then all of a sudden, you are, uh, you're, you're a civilian again, um, which is great in a lot of respects because uh, you can just get on with doing things. In another way, you're still a musician. You still want to prove yourself. And uh, you, you, so you, you keep working. Um, I've sort of forgot the question. But. Yeah, no, I've just, you were talking about sort of that feeling of being a, uh, you mentioned that being a third, yeah, third class yeah. citizen. I just wondered if that had changed with your, you know, A or B, yes, being recognisable, but also the fact that, you know, you'd become, you know, phenomenally successful and, and obvious, but it's not the most, it's not a recommended career if you're not feeling particularly sort of, as most people have said, you know, you have to be pretty thick-skinned in this in this uh, kind of industry because it's so ruthless at times. So, but I just wondered if you ever, you know, how how that f was feeling for you as as the decades had gone on. Um, I think at certain times, I mean, I I try to keep myself to myself. Uh, <laughs> I. I don't go out too much, and when I do, it's only locally, really. Um, and slowly, as the years have gone, 
people, people. Um, I mean, I, there was a time when I'd walk down the street, and uh, it would take me a long time to get that and get to the bottom of that street, and a lot of people would be shouting and talking and um, and and you knew that you were in a group, you know. And it's nice not to have that. It's certainly nice to not have that. But there is certainly also times when uh, when when that isn't there, you then go back into being a third party citizen because you you're 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 one amongst uh, anyone else and um you get treated differently. So I think my benevolence has been that people have recognized who I am when when we were doing well, and um, that's allowed me to, to think of my life as in a different sphere. But essentially, now that has rubbed off, it's gone back to, to towards uh, being a third-rate sort of uh, citizen again. And it's uh, it's interesting how how that comes how that is. Um, and other times, it's 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 uh, it's lovely to be uh, free again. Yes, I would imagine, but it must. Yes, it must. It must be a sort of dual thing. So, when did you? You know, you got this new album out, which is interesting timing for such a sort of global pandemic. But um, when did you start um, working on the album? Um, we probably worked on it for quite a long time. Uh, it was probably started about seven years ago. Um, one of the one of the reasons for the label and to be working with other people was to get the label to put other stuff out that we really liked and that was really the remit of it and to also be doing something <clears throat> whilst I put my head together um, because I certainly had burnt out um, and I had to get through quite a lot of things um, and that took years in fact it's still probably going on but um, the, uh, so putting albums out was uh, and doing the label was a, a simple way of doing things and not getting too involved in it myself, um, other than the hard work. Because we doing an independent label, going back to that nowadays, is really just working for free. And um, luckily, we 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 love the bands that we put out, and we find them an extension of what we like in in music. And we've got bands from France and. Japan uh, and America and Belgium. It, it, it doesn't matter where they're from. As long as we like them, we, we, we put them out. Uh, and we try to treat them like we would want to be treated. And so we uh, try to keep things um, very, very simple and very, um, very transparent. Um, and we sort of go back to the contract era that we started off with Ouija, which is 50-50 deals. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's, the album took a very, very long time. And normally I would have had um, pockets of, of lyrics and beer mats of lyrics ready and um, one was always writing all the time. Because I had to get get through a few things, M melodies and music would come. So you'd, I'd start songs with guitar and then um, maybe a, a, a chorus or maybe just a, one line and then uh, then slowly build uh, those songs up and get other people involved and then t take it on from there. But then towards the end, I had to unfortunately fill in all those holes where the lyrics would be, and that took a long time in itself as well, because I wasn't used to that kind of writing. I'm used to having the writing being, not always, but being the, the rails uh, on which the track can uh, develop. So I was going to say, did you find it emotionally difficult to have to sort of switch kind of minds, like, you know, to be that creative artist, mostly you need a bit of kind of like space and not sort of thinking oh my god I've got all this admin to do but running the label it's like must be full of admin is that the reason that you were just struggling to get the lyrics together no because everything was spaced out uh, all our releases were, were spaced out we'd never really had too many on at any any one time no and also towards the end we didn't have we, we 
we, we were sort of running the label down anyway because we were essentially working for free, which was lovely, but we had to sort of put a bit of a stop to it, um, which is, I mean, we've got one artist now on the go and that will be our, our, our last artist unless we come across something that we uh, we really, really enjoy and then we'll put the band back on the road. But, um, no, so the label works had had sort of reduced anyway. I think, you know, weeks turned into months, turned into years, and even the engineer that in Preston, Alan at West Orange, thought that uh, we it wasn't going to finish. It was just carrying on and on and on, and then on again and on again, and then another year. Um, uh, in the end, this was two years before it was finished, we had to, had to had to draw a line under the songs that were done, and we chose 20 songs that were done more thoroughly uh, and concentrated on them to finish. And then with, with those 20, you could have uh, enough B-sides and an album and then when we did put it out, there was no need. People don't do besides anymore. Everything's digital, so it's just one track. Um, and I think it put a lot of pressure on me and my wife. And my wife was saying it's never going to get finished. Uh, and she's the label manager, quite frankly. So that was it. Was it was stressful? Um, things just were getting done they were getting done there was progress happening and that's how i like to work i like to start with something then build on to it and then have another section maybe go to preston to work with the other people there and you know things are developing as recording is going on and then the last for me the last uh, the last um recording session is is with the um backing vocalist and then then you're ready for uh, you're ready for for mixing and um the the backing vocalist was actually a, a mother for, from uh, our local school um who we'd met and she said that she did singing and we we said we were looking for a harmonies person and she said, "Well, that's that's what she concentrates on." So she came in and did did her stuff, and um, yeah, and then it still took ages. And by that time, our Preston studio had moved to Poitiers, so that's where we went to mix it. Uh, and then we had to look for our mastering studio, used to be in Camden, change, and they dispersed. Um, so we had to look for a new mastering. Uh, Suite and that, that actually took quite a long time as well. And then uh, slowly it came out, and we we've actually been rather shocked on on the response that we've had for it. It's been very positive, much more positive than we thought it would be. Um, it's really I mean, we saw our career really at the end uh, before this album, and now it's actually this album's come along and it's put all of our back catalogue. Um, back out there and with an element of interest to all of it. It's it's quite weird. We've more we did more in three days of this album being released than we've done in years of, of some of the other albums being out. So we're very happy about that. Yes. Well, it's it sounds like you were getting close to the to a um, a nervous breakdown actually during this album. It sounded like it was getting quite quite hit, you know quite raw at times. I think I was moving away from a few nervous uh, breakdowns. Um, I was, yeah, I was moving away from them, and I was doing things to comfort me whilst uh, I could get my my head back together. Yes, but I have to say, the opening track, Saint Marie Under Cannon, is is a classic. You must think that that's just going to that's going to be, you know, that's a solid gold single, isn't it? I mean, it's so you, you your ability to still write very catchy instantly sort of like oh yeah this is this is great stuff they haven't lost it at all so you must be pleased with you know the the, the sort of quality of the the material on the album we, we are pleased but then if you've lived with it for so long 
you don't know how other people are going to perceive it. And we, I, th I think my wife would stop listening to stuff. I would say, oh, what do you think of this? And she'd say, well, yeah, sounds like what it was five years ago. Um, things like that. And then you're like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so I think we lived with it and we liked it. And also there's the element of what was going on uh, in terms of the music, in, in terms of music, when when it was released as well, I think if it, if it had gone out earlier, I don't think it would have got this reception. They were far. I don't think it, it would have sat well with what has happened in the past, and that, in a way, was what we were looking at all the time. We weren't just writing; we were also seeing what the people that we respected were doing. And I think some sometimes, a lot of the times, we'd, we'd say, "What the hell is this group playing at? We can't believe that this is the group that also did whatever album." And we didn't ever want it to fall for that either. And I think that goes back to that goes back to the major label and uh, independent label sort of thing. You'd see groups, um, you'd see groups like actually gay bikers on acid uh, that were from Leicester. I wasn't living in Leicester then. You'd see a group like that, and you'd you'd be sh you'd be thrilled and shocked by the live the live performance because there were so many lights, there were so many things going off and it was total entertainment. Then you'd see them again six months later and they were off the major label and they were like the back of a pub band. It would it all reduced nothing. I think I've always been very conscious that you don't want that other band. It's it's uh, it's not a good thing <laughs> to happen. So we've always been very conscious of that. And I think that's also another reason why we we put a lot of effort into this. In fact, all of our albums, we put a lot of effort in. And I think that's that's why people are looking back at them. And I don't think they... I don't... I think it was more than just the record label that lost interest, unfortunately. And uh, it's very good to see that that interest is coming back to that catalogue because, because of this album. Yes. Well, it was interesting because I did notice on Spotify that your monthly listeners were just short of a million, which is in a month is like, blimey, that's, they're, they're, that's, a, that's a lot of people still very interested in listening to the band. I mean, you know, so that must, you know, even though that might not sort of equate to sort of financial reward, it's, it's, it means that the band is still very much kind of um, in people's consciousness and being sort of given heavy play. So, again... It's um, yeah. It, as an artist, you must be quite thankful for that for that sort of um, recognition at, uh, in some small way. Oh no, we're, we're very thankful for everything. Um, we, uh, as I said, we we thought that uh, that that was it for us before this album, and um, it's. The, the the responses that we're getting that it sounds like a best of album that of, of songs that you've never heard is is pretty good. The, the people saying that it's the start of the summer for them is pretty good. Yes, absolutely. And just lastly, what because um, because frankly you've been you've been in this in this kind of um, industry for a long time. What would you have said to a an eighteen year old self, you know, starting out? If you could have just whispered a few things to, to say, you know, just think about this or look out for this? Sorry, my 18-year-old self. Yeah, I just wonder what you would have liked to have said to yourself when you were 18 that, you know, just to sort of keep an eye on or to sort of remember to, to do. When I said, all I had in my mind when I asked said that was like, floss your teeth. But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean, you know, floss your teeth. But, you know, just like, oh, look, kid, just remember to do this or do that. You know, if you're 18, I, it was just kind of one of those, you know, a few bullet points that you think, yeah, that was, that would have been, a, that was a really good learning lesson. But I wished I'd sort of been told that when I was younger. Um, well, it's weird. I mean, I always try to to do well via the legal side of things, and I've come from a business degree. I, I, um, unfortunately, when some of the the paperwork was done, we were sort of uh, not as well represented as, as we should have been. Um, and 
we it could have been a lot worse. Uh, we could have been uh, a, 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 we could have been a group that, that just didn't work again, um, like some of the groups that you were talking about. But it 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 wasn't great, but it wasn't the worst thing uh, that that could be before the group. Um, and I, I think other than that, I wouldn't give anyone any advice at all. I never really. Um, I never really took took too much uh, advice from other people. Yes. Um, <laughs> because you, you you've got to do it the way that you feel it, and uh, maybe yeah, I, I I'm not one for that much advice. Um, and to, to, to other people because uh, yeah. <laughs> but look, I just and also, I mean, this is a quite a weird and interesting period that we're living through. I mean, what have you? What's your next plan or the next kind of project that you're thinking of working on, or are you just kind of recovered and seeing how this one pans out? Yeah, we'll, we'll just see what happens uh, with this album. Um, and at the moment, we're just in admin mode. We're not recording. We're not recording anything because of the lockdown but um we'd already started luckily just before lockdown the album had been released and we manufactured actually we're on our third pressing of, of this album and because it's manufactured in in germany we were able to get those um vinyl copies through um so we're busy just doing the admin of the day-to-day -day with the label and also doing interviews and uh, and posting stuff out because that's that's still part of the label thing yes and do you I ever and do you ever sort of plan to uh, play live in the future no. no we stopped playing live uh about five years ago no actually it was more than that it was probably about seven years ago we stopped well i stopped <laughs> Would you ever? Would you? And is that going to be something that you'll you'll sort of stick with for the rest of your life? It's certainly what I'm sticking with at the moment. Um, you know, we did tour a hell of a lot, and we saw a lot of the world, and uh, we saw saw. Oh, sorry, people are clapping in the background because of the because of the, uh, the nurse. The, the oh, energy. that one. Yes, I've got you. But yes, it still happens, doesn't it? So yes, uh, yeah. The um, sorry, what were we talking about again? Just oh, touring, yeah. touring. You said you did a lot, a hell of a lot. Yeah, yeah we we've done enough touring, and I think you know we enjoyed what we did, and we thought we came across as a band that's quite different. And but we we done done enough, and again, it was a matter of well, how does this group? carry on and get through whatever situation we found ourselves in and we found uh, that well i found that not going on tour was one way of at least being able to continue um, being in a studio and writing um and so that's that's where i've diverted my energies yeah. well look this has been fantastic well thank you ever so much for your time and well, um and i'm, I'm sorry Come across so sort of uh, serious about it, but I'm sort of looking at my computer screen and talking to a wall, which is quite strange in itself. But um, yeah, that, we've obviously covered a lot of ground and uh, a lot of emotions as well. But uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't more chipper. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, it's a strange time of our lives. But um, no, I thought it was quite chipper. It was great. Look, thank you ever so much, and. Um, when I put it out, I'll send you a link and you can always, you know, use it on your social media platforms, as we like to call them. So that's cool. fantastic. But look, take care. And um, I hope it goes really well. And like I said, what I've heard of the album has been fantastic. So, um, yes, it's been great. And it's, and it's lovely, actually, when someone brings a new album out, you do also have that moment of delving back and listening to other bits and pieces. Some you know and some you slightly went, oh, yes, that album, I slightly missed that one. So um, you've, done a lot of, you've done a lot of work, actually. But look, take care and uh, all the best for the year and decade. And yourself, David. Thank you for that. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes, bye.
And that is the end of the interview. And if you're still listening, well done. You deserve a medal. Anyway, I enjoyed it, and that's one that matters. Um, so that was me, David Eastall, in conversation with Corner Shop's main man, Jinder Singh. If you want to um, contact me, God knows why, but I like to say this, um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to at C86show. It is always nice um, to get messages, as long as they're positive, obviously. Don't bother if they're not. Um, and uh, yes, to stay tuned, because I've got lots more interviews in the bag. Anyway, as I said, they have a co- uh, Corner Shop has a very good web, uh, website and a new album out. Do check it out. It's very good. I'm not being biased. Anyway, it's titled England is a Garden. Have a good week. <laughs>